Scano Segoani, bonjour, kwe kwe, tansi, good morning, and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Welcome to our listeners in both cities, and of course, uh, right across the country, if you have downloaded the Radio Player Canada app and you have typed in 95.7 ELMNT, FM or 106.5 ELMNT if you're listening in the Toronto and Ottawa areas and you can listen on in on your device anywhere across the country. And we are very pleased to have a very special guest with us in the studio, but a very brief uh, encounter with her this morning. Gawanaherde is here with us and her name also, it means, that means uh, what she says is important and uh, her name is Gawanahorde Devery Jacobs. She is an actress. She's also a director. And uh, I want to tell her, I didn't say anything to her uh, about this uh, before the interview started, but um, the camera really likes her. If you haven't seen her, <laughs> the camera really likes her. I can tell you that. And you've probably been told that before, right? I don't know. Sure. <laughs> oh, come on. I'm sure you have. If if, uh, if someone hasn't, I'm sure they will tell you at some point. It's a pleasure to have you here, and I, I appreciate your time. I know you're, you're here on a very uh, short, limited time. We only have you for about 15 minutes. So, Well, Nyamoko, for having me and mm. for uh, having me for such a short period of time. I didn't realize that it was actually so short, so, yeah. but thanks for having me. Well, it's great that you're here. So listen, let's talk fast. Yeah. So uh, briefly... Uh, I think it's wonderful that you're from Gahnawage. That's right. And uh, that you've you've managed to uh, cut a piece of of, uh, of carpet for yourself in the film industry. And it looks like things are going extremely well for you. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Things have been... Uh, I've been very fortunate in the roles that I've been able to land. So I'm really appreciative of that. So listen, for people that don't know, you know, why don't you give us a, a little bit of a, of a history about some of the roles you've... you've Played and also a little bit of the background. How did you get started? For sure. So I grew up in Gahnawage, Mohawk territory, and um, I always loved acting. I was always like a ham, and mm. I had my very first role was in the Turtle Island Theater Company's production of The Wizard of Oz, oh, nice. and I, yeah, I played yeah. a Munchkin. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and so my mom saw how much I loved acting uh, and had loved essentially the industry. And so when I was ten, she submitted me to. Uh, a Montreal agency because my community borders Montreal. Mm-hmm. And um, she didn't tell me because she didn't want me to be heartbroken in case that I didn't get into the agency. <laughs> right. uh, but I did. And she asked, she's like, is this something that you want to do? And I was like, over the moon. I was mm. like, of course I want to do this. Um, but I didn't really find success throughout my uh, young teenage and teenage years. Um I had done a couple of roles here and there. I had gotten into the union, um, but I wasn't there. There were few roles for uh, Anglophone actors in Montreal, let alone like indigenous mm. actors. Uh, and it was when I was pursuing something else. I was studying to be a counselor and I was working at the Native Women's Shelter of Montreal. Mm. I decided the film industry was like too unreliable and that I'd never mm. be able to make a career mm-hmm. out of it. Uh, but it was at that time that I was cast in my first leading role in a feature film called Rhymes for Young Ghouls, which will be screening tomorrow at the Young and Dundas Cineplex nice. as a part of uh, Canadian Film Day. But uh yeah, that was my first experience where I had seen um, my family reflected in a character. And that was the project that really launched my career. And since then, uh, I've been uh, the lead in, in, a, in going on my fifth feature, mm. uh, I believe. I believe that's the number. And then I've also, um, in recent years, have... Uh, been a part of the film Ameri- or the series American Gods, yeah. uh, as well as Cardinal mm. and the Netflix show The Order. Mm-hmm. Now, um, for for our listening audience in in other areas, do you know where the Rhymes for Young Ghouls will be playing in other cities, or where how, how that might I be? I don't know where it would be playing in other cities for Canadian Film Day. I'm I'm unsure if it's just in Toronto, but. Mm. Uh, I knew that in uh, the U.S. that it was on Netflix for a while. I mm-hmm. believe it was on the movie network here in Canada. Okay. Uh, it's also available on iTunes. You can purchase it on Amazon. You can just Google it. I'm pretty right. sure there's like an illegal download now. now. Like, you know your ex- <laughs> success you when that? like your movie's been pirated? <laughs> I guess. Yeah, that's right. There you go. Woohoo! I made it now. Um, <laughs> so listen, yes, you mentioned uh, a film day. 
Um, uh, what are you doing specifically for Film Day tomorrow? Anything? So tomorrow, uh, I'm going to be headed to the Cineplex at Young and Dundas, and I'm going to be doing a Q&A for Rhymes for Young Ghouls. And I haven't seen it in a couple of mm. years now, so it'll be nice to... Uh, right to remember that film and and share that with audiences who haven't gotten the chance to see it yet. So listen, I'd like to go back a little bit just to, to uh, because I always like to think of our listeners and think if someone's out there listening going, you know, hey, I'd like to do this. How did she get there? Like, what did she do? What steps did she take? Um, so what did you do for acting uh, uh, um, in terms of uh, 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 finding people you could work with, you know, and study with and those kind of things? I mean, my particular journey and everybody's journey is going to look different and what works for them. Uh, But for myself, it was always like a deep-seated passion for for loving this. Mm -hmm. And essentially, it's like you have to seize an opportunity when it presents itself to you. And it was really difficult with Rhymes for Young Girls because I was going to school full time. Mm -hmm. I hadn't taken the time off when I was Mm -hmm. uh, going to school. So I was like on set doing working Mm -hmm. on assignments. But it's kind of like... When someone says jump, you have yeah, to jump. Right. Um, but what's also been uh, really difficult is that there is a lot of sacrifice. Like I've been away from my community for uh, a couple of years now and I've missed like I'm, I'm very close with my family. And so mm-hmm. I've missed like birthdays and baby showers and things like that. And it's really tough. Um, so you have to really love it. But um, something that I've learned that's been really interesting is like uh, that. Anybody could play the idea of something, but mm-hmm. only you can bring your truthful perspective to a performance. And um, and that, I think, was um, something that I learned that really helped me uh, in in landing these different roles. You know, I'm glad you mentioned a couple of things in there. Sacrifice and jump when, the, when, when it arises. Because I think a lot of people tend to, I uh, want to think about it, or, you know, they're not sure... But that's a very crucial part of... of it's hard. It's yeah. scary. Of it's not it an is. easy thing. But do you find uh, that, yes, there's always that fear, but when you take that first step, you, when you jump, that it's not as scary or it isn't uh, it isn't what you thought it might be and that you, you just go roll with it? I mean, it's never what you think it's going to be. Right. And yeah. so you just kind of have to like... Yeah, there's this analogy where it's like the train is pulling out... <laughs> And you're either going to get on board or you're going to miss it. And I've missed opportunities before Mm -hmm. because I was like, I was unsure. And also, I've also um, didn't jump on opportunities because they didn't feel right for me. Mm. And that was also valid. So I think it's like jump when when someone says jump, but also make sure that it like connects to your instincts and your gut and that it feels right at the same time. The gut feeling that has to come. But yeah, there's definitely always in this industry an element of the unknown and you don't know when you're, where your next job is. You don't know uh, where your next paycheck's coming from. uh, And you just kind of have to be swept up and hope for the best and trust that everything will fall where it's supposed to. So where was that, where was that filmed? Uh, Gahn- it was filmed in Gahanawaga oh, in my was. community. Okay, they did an international search across like <laughs> reserves in Canada, reservations in uh, like in the states, right. and I so happened to be from the very community yeah. that they had planned to shoot in anyway. Cool. And then uh, in another another uh, film, you actually went up to the uh, Arctic Circle. You were saying in film. Yes, there, I right? did. Um, that was another uh, telefilm micro budget that I had done called The Sun at Midnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had I was the lead in that and acted opposite of uh, Dwayne Howard. And we shot that in Yellowknife and in Fort McPherson. And that was um, shooting in the North was an incredibly beautiful yeah. experience. And that film uh, certainly is has reaped some some really good re- uh, rewards and, and accolades. It definitely has. It it was really uh, very much on myself and mm-hmm. Dwayne shoulders, especially because it was uh, such a low budget that they couldn't mm. like afford to have a crazy like mm. plot driven film. It has <laughs> to really be like a character driven story, mm. um, and and that was what we had done. But also on like such a beautiful backdrop because when you look at it, you're yeah. like, this looks like green screen, but it's really not because we were. <laughs> freezing our butts off out there <laughs> yeah that and that looks uh and I'm, I'm sorry to say i haven't seen it but i definitely want to it looks like a great film I mean, pink hair looks really good on you by the way. oh thanks <laughs> <laughs> what did, do you know how they was that a, a specific that uh they had at the very beginning of that for you well it was in the script and yeah. so um i had 
hair like down to my butt. I had mm. hair that you can see in Rams Free Young Ghouls mm. uh, for a really long time. And then in the story, they cut my hair, but they were actually cutting a wig. Some mm. like behind the scenes knowledge. Right. But right, um, right. after that film, I want to say like two years after, I had chopped my hair to a pixie cut. Mm. Um, and then in uh, the Sun at Midnight script, they had said like short pink cropped hair. And the director was like, I understand if you don't want to dye your hair. I was like, I have two inches of hair left. Like, of course I'm going to dye it. Like, let's. <laughs> and I thought that was really crucial into getting into the character of mm. Leah yeah. um, because she's like this punky yeah, glam yeah. pop teen yeah, princess. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I thought it was like a, a key step in really like, like grounding myself in the character. Yeah. So, so this is great. You're going to be there for tomorrow for this Q and A, and um, what's what's coming up for you in the in the near future? Uh, what's coming up for me? So, I am one of the co-writers on the feature film called This Place that mm-hmm. got financing through Telefilm, uh, and I'm also playing the leading role in it. Uh, and I, VT90 is directing that, who I also co-wrote it with, along uh, who is a Tamil. Um, it's a Tamil f- filmmaker, mm. and uh, we've also co-written it with Gulshan Abdamole, who is a, a Persian poet. And cool. it's essentially the story of these uh, two young women and their love story and how the past influences their present. And mm. it was launched uh, from a conversation around the 2009 protests of the uh, Sri Lankan genocide with and Tamil people coming together and and protesting but it was the idea of what does it mean for them to be protesting on stolen land mm. and so we wrote this project um that is essentially could only take place in toronto and we're joking it's like the most intersectional film of all time <laughs> mm. cool um and anything else uh, that you're going to be working on or do yeah you? um so what's coming out next for me um is a feature film called The Lie. It's Vina Sood's feature film directorial debut. She was the creator of the show The Killing. Mm. Uh, and I act opposite of Joey King, of uh, Peter Sarsgaard and Murray Enos. And um, yeah, it was a Blumhouse production, so the same uh, production company from Get Out. Mm. So that premiered at TIFF, and it's uh, supposed to have a limited theatrical release right. sometime soon. That's very cool. So you mentioned that you don't get back to uh, to to Ganawagi much to see your family and and, and friends and and spend. I some get time back there. as often as I can. Yeah. I used to go back uh, more frequently, probably around like once a month, just mm. because I'm like I'm really close with my family. Mm. But as the success has been uh, building, it's been harder and harder to get back, which is which is really tough because it's important for me to stay connected. Uh, but luckily, what I do to try and stay connected is I found a Ganyat Gaha class at the University of Toronto, which my friend Ryan DeCare teaches. Mm. I'm also taking um, an online Moha class that Zoe Hopkins, who's the filmmaker behind yeah, uh, yeah. Kayak to Clem to, yeah. uh, that she runs. And so those are different ways that I try and stay connected to uh, nice. my Ganyat Gahaga roots. I know Zoe, and I hope to have her on the show as well to talk about that very film. Yes. Uh, in the near future. So uh, that's great. So listen, um, once again, let's just uh, recap because we're almost out of time, believe that's it or not. That's crazy. I know. It's it's very crazy. So Real Canada, uh, uh, Real, uh, Real Canada is uh, National Film Day is tomorrow and they're ce- celebrating 100 years of Canadian cinema. So uh, that's going to be, there's going to be 1,000 screenings and events that are going to be taking place in 600 Canadian communities and 25 countries. Um, from Northern Baffin Island all around uh, uh, the provinces and 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 the country, and uh, I gotta get this again. Gawanaherde, is going to be herself on uh, on on uh, uh, at her her filming of Rhymes for Young Ghouls, and uh, where's that going to be again? What what cinema? A Young and Dundas. Young Cineplex. and Dundas Cineplex. Do you know what time? Uh, it's supposed to be on at 7 p.m. Okay. And there will be a Q&A you'll be hanging around for afterwards? Yes, there will be. And anyone else with you or is it just going to be you? Uh, I think it's just myself that's representing the film, but I know that Jeff Barnaby was really wanting to come to Toronto for it. So mm. is our producer, John Christie. Uh, but yeah, I think it's just going to be me repping the film. So uh, we have about 30 seconds left. So can you quickly... Uh, give us a synopsis, a teaser for people that might want to come and see that film. What they're uh, going to Rhymes for Young Ghouls is a residential school revenge movie. 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I like it. <laughs> Super short. Uh... <laughs> I didn't expect it to be that short. But that's... <laughs> Listen, it's been it's been great having you, you on the show today. I hope you will come back and do this again with us in the near future. I would love to. And maybe next time we could actually do the full hour. Yeah, that would be fabulous. <laughs> so, uh Goa for coming in. Yeah, Nyao Goa. All right. And welcome back to Moment of Truth. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And you could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app if you have downloaded the app and uh, have typed in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM and listening on your device anywhere across Canada. Uh, Again, it was a great short interview we had earlier with Devery and uh, look forward to maybe seeing that film tomorrow with her. But certainly checking out other stuff she has done. Right now, though, on the phone, uh, we have Diane Dewing, who is the president of the Ontario Teachers Federation. Good morning and welcome to the show, Diane. Well, good morning. So glad to be speaking with you. And are you, where about you calling from today? So I am attending Canadian Teachers Federation meetings in Ottawa today. Mm-hmm. Um, and my job happily brings me around to meet with the most interesting people. And can you, what do you mean by that? So I have the opportunity to talk with teachers all over the province and their leaders. I have the opportunity to talk with um, community activists and student activists, to talk with uh, people who work in government and who are elected to government. And uh, through Canadian Teachers Federation, I have the opportunity to do much the same across Canada. And through Education International, I'm able to keep a kind of a, a my finger on the heartbeat of what's going on in education all around the world. Isn't it the best job? <laughs> I'm happy for you. <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm happy for me too because really, education is something I'm I'm passionate about. Mm. Something I, you know, worked hard to build some knowledge, mm. and so I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, listen, I'm I'm sure from what you have just said that uh, you probably have some very interesting conversations going on about now. Um, especially if we can bring it uh, closer to uh, to home in, in the province of Ontario and things that are happening right now. Oh, can I just say, yikes. <laughs> sure. You know, uh, so, so here's, here's the issue. You know, there is not an element of our population that is has not been uh, impacted greatly, I think, by the decisions of this government. There are, there have been cuts and there have been discontinuation of programs that impact a wide variety of our communities. Ontario is a very diverse population. We're not a homogeneous population. And it seems at times that those who have the most to lose have been the ones who have been cut first. And, you know, speaking to the issue of, of, Indigenous education, wow, because I I feel as though this community has been hit particularly hard. Mm -hmm. I I talk a lot, um, I talk a lot with um, my friends and and, uh, other community community leaders, and I'm hearing a lot of really strong language because, you know, it felt like prior to the election that the people were at a point where they were feeling that their voices were being heard, that there was the beginning of a conversation about children and land and language, knowledge. There was a conversation about natural resources. And and there was a real hope that the TRC calls for action were going to be taken seriously. And instead, there's a feeling that all of this has been disrupted by this Ford government. Mm. And I, I hear terrible, I, you know, I hear really strong language. And, you know, people are saying that this government has pulled the carpet out from all of the people. And and that while they, they had hoped that we would be, you know, building that new relationship with government and institutions and all peoples, that 
the clawbacks from our schools, our health care, and our community supports are, are, are pulling us back to a place where we used to be, where, where the indigenous community used to be. Mm. Now, when you say pulling us back, I'm wondering if you could, could, can you relate this in years? And what I mean by that is if you were saying that, that with the cutbacks and the changes that are being implemented and will be implemented, how far back would you say this is going to set us? It's really hard to say mm. um, because the great hope is always in our youth mm. and in our and, and in local leadership who will do their best to ameliorate. But it's really hard when you don't have the institutions or the resources to make this possible. So just to kind of give a snapshot, um, in 2004, four percent of elementary schools and 61% of high schools were engaging in some kind of Indigenous learning opportunity. So they were, they had instituted an Indigenous Studies course or an Indigenous Language course, or they were bringing in uh, cultural supports to the school or community consultation, maybe some guest speakers. By 2018, that leapt upwards to 74% in our elementary schools and 84% in our secondary schools. Mm. That's a massive increase. Yeah. And a lot of that is the result of, of the TRC. You know, 60, sure. we take the, the calls to action, 62 and 63, really, really seriously. Mm-hmm. But it's awfully hard to implement those calls to action when we're seeing the kind of massive cuts to our social institutions that are coming forward. It's, you know, really, it's terrifying when I see that, you know, 15% of, of, of the um, Ministry of Indigenous Affairs budget was, was cut. Mm. You know, so that's, that's huge. Mm-hmm. That's a huge amount of money, and and that money was spent in resources for communities. Within education, there are so many things going on that are going to impact all of our children. Um, so with the class sizes moving in high school, um, from the present 22 average, remember it's an average, to an average of 28, that's going to mean the loss of a quarter of our high school teachers. Mm. That's a lot of teachers out of the system. That means class sizes are going to move from 40 plus. And in schools that are teaching indigenous languages, and, and that's an increasing number, generally they try to keep the class size between Um, 14 and 20, in order to ensure that there is a real um, understanding and development Mm. of the language. That's not going to be possible when you're only funded for class sizes that are 40 plus. So that's a massive loss, massive. And, And on top of that, you know, each one of the teachers that is lost teaches between four and five courses, so that all of those will be lost. The teachers who are in the system are going to have higher numbers of students, and as they try to work really hard to make sure that each child are met, they're going to have less and less time for the kind of community that they, you know, teachers have traditionally volunteered in. I don't know a community in, in Ontario that hasn't got a teacher, you know, coaching uh, sports or running a, you know, theater drama in the community or, you know, they're, just, they're, they're in all our organizations. They're so active. It's mm. a big problem. That's a massive problem. Now, I know that, that the uh, the government was saying that they were going to be, uh, the teachers would be lost to uh, attrition just, to, you know, as they retire and, and they're gone kind of thing. <laughs> but they're not going to be adding. So, so I mean, what, what they're saying is that the teacher unions don't need to worry because we're not going to lose any jobs, right? Right. 
It is not in the nature of teachers to be worried about their jobs. Mm. Teachers really aren't worried about themselves and their jobs. Mm. What they're worried about is their kids. Right. So those those positions will be lost. There will be no one replacing those teachers Mm. or the courses that they teach. Right. So if you have guidance counselors in the school who normally have zero teachers, then the chance and likelihood is there will be no guidance counselors in the school because if we put one in the school, you're going to have a class, you're going to have classes in that school of 47 kids. Mm. And that's not helpful. Right. So this, this affects everyone in really deep ways. Um, it, it's terrifying. And then you add to that, you know, the fact that they're saying that one course for uh, of each, each year, so that's going to be a total of four courses over the four years, has to be done on an e-learning platform. Right. If you live in a rural or northern part of this province, you are so euchred. Yes. There is not. Yeah, Go ahead. No we we had a we we had a, a guest on the program who gave us a specific uh, um, uh, explanation of of a, of a specific encounter that he had in the north, uh, and this person had to do with infrastructure. Uh, it wasn't to do with education, but he was. Uh, if I can just interject on this story that you're you're, you're explaining about the north. Um, and I'm not sure whereabouts, maybe up around North Bay, Sudbury, I'm not sure whereabouts in the north he was. Uh, but he was saying he was following his GPS and got lost. And he was on this back road. He didn't know where he was. And uh, as he was going down this road, he saw some people standing on the road in front of him. And he noticed they all had their arms up. And uh, he, as he got closer, he noticed they were students and they all had their their devices, their phones or their 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 uh, tablets, holding them up to get reception, uh, because it was the only place they could get reception. And they were trying to do their homework, uh, and they were all from a reserve. And so, when you give that example of of being euchred if you're in the north and and don't have access to this e-learning uh, platform, uh, that's 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 an example that this person gave, and I thought it's a, a very a very good one. And it's not just in, in our way northern. I mean, lots of rural communities. So just outside Ottawa, in, in you know, near Almont, mm. for instance, I have a friend who the only way she and her children can receive a stable internet is if they go into the pantry and sit on the floor of the north side of the room. That's the only area of the house where there's enough internet that's Mm. received that you can do it. So her children, her three children, if they were doing e-learning, each would require 75 minutes Mm. of uninterrupted time on a computer, which not every house owns, just to do their work. This is so fundamentally wrong. Mm. On top of that, you know, connectivity is not just about the internet. In education, connectivity is about that relationship between student and teacher. Mm. Um, We're talking children. They're in their growing years. They're prone to distraction. They need to have guidance. Mm. They, they may need to have individualized support. They, they need encouragement and praise and reminders of what their strengths are and not just to be hammered home on, on their weaknesses. I mean, these are all things that teachers do, and that's why people, people all over the world can tell you the teachers that change their lives. Sure. I never heard anybody tell me about an e-learning course that changed their life. <laughs> Now, yeah. you know, going back to to some of the uh, the, the things you've mentioned earlier, um, and and some of the changes and some of the uh, you know from two thousand four to two thousand eighteen, and that increase in um, indigenous elements uh, that that were implemented in things. Um, I've actually been a part of 
an Indigenous Education Council in the Halton region, and um, yeah. I sat on that for a number of years. So um, that's that. I I would venture to say that that is something else that has uh, that has been implemented and is growing. Would you say in the schools? So I would say that the schools are just beginning to get to the stage of of, of reaching out, because one of the things that we're still seeing is not so much, well, some teachers, but mostly it's school administration who, who don't understand that, that the, teaching, um, the teaching of culture, Indigenous education, is important for all students of Canada, mm. that, if, that, that the only way that we can, we can possibly meet the calls to action are if everyone, everyone, no matter where you are, has knowledge of of past wrongs and also the things that 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 indigenous communities have done to to support the growth of 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 Canadian identity mm. you know and and so uh you know when you have people who will look you in the eye and say that oh well we don't have any indigenous students in our school so that's a reason not to do it I mean, again, yikes! Mm. That's that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, but I I wanted to go back. You said you were sitting on a council. OTF mm. used mm-hmm. to sit at ministry council tables too. And two of them that we used to sit on was um, the ministry's advisory council on First Nations, Métis, and Inuit education, mm. and also the one on Indigenous student well-being. We used to sit on a total of, I believe, 14 committees at the uh, at, at the ministry level to to give teacher voice. None of those committees have met, nor is there any um, intention by the government to have those committees meet again. Wow! So the voice is gone. This is not valued. Wow. So yikes, if I may borrow that phrase from you, yikes. Yikes. You know, I don't, I don't think the average person really understands how much they're going to lose in the next little while. When I, when I look, you know, across, and I think, you know, particularly education and healthcare are kind of our pillars of a just society. That's, that's the thing that, that provides equalization so that no matter where you live or how much you earn, you can go to, you know, a publicly funded public school and get the same high level of education as anywhere else. It's one of the reasons why we fought and are still fighting the massive battle over the federal schools, which fund their, their, their students at $2,000 less. Right. So no wonder they can't hire the same quality of teachers. No wonder they don't have any resources. Mm-hmm. You know, we're fighting that because it's a worthwhile battle because we know education is the great equalizer. Mm. So yikes for sure. And then, um, you know, I just looking beyond high school to the college and university yeah. system, the loss of funding at colleges and universities is is massively impactful. And so one of the things that the colleges and universities are doing is they're talking about reducing the number of, of courses that they offer. Well if you're if you're a student living in rural areas or in the north, that means that your northern university that you would normally go to, which is still awfully far away from home, but at least is a little closer, may not have your course. And the only way you can get the course you need is to go even farther south. Mm. That's huge for our families. Mm -hmm. And then you put on top of that, you know, a reduction in non-repayable grants and instead an increase in loans so that students will graduate owing even more money to the government. And then also the, the elimination of the six-month grace period for loan repayment. You know, it used to be if you graduated school, the government 
gave you six months to kind of get your act together, get your move done, right. see if you could find some a job somewhere before they started to calculate interest and, and to have you repay your own. Right. Now the day you graduate, that goes. That's a huge burden on our young people. Mm. Yeah. So I don't represent colleges and universities. I, I, I look at kindergarten to grade 12. But education is is a whole, you know, it's a whole part of society, and and I I really really struggle to to understand things like when with the, one of the second things, well, one of the very first things they did, of course, was the government canceled the um, Indigenous curriculum writing team, which was they were due to be in Toronto on Monday morning to update um, curriculum um, with in, Indigenous content mm. to in response to the Truth and Reconciliations Commission. And there was an, actually another one, uh, another writing team that was working on um, creating curriculum for Indigenous language within the kindergarten classroom late on Friday afternoon. So people were already packing. Some people had already left their communities because of the distance of their commute. It was canceled. They said, don't come, never mind. And that has never, they keep saying, oh no, it's just postponed. It's just postponed. It's starting to feel like Monty Python's parrot. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. no, no, it's not dead. It's just sleeping. Right. Yes. So that's a problem. And then, you know, here's me being all passionate again, but I can't help it. When when the Office of the Child Advocate was canceled, mm. that took my breath away because that office worked really hard to support Ontario's most vulnerable youth. And any youth in, in the province could directly contact the office and they would have their concern investigated. It was amazing. And through the, the interactions and the calls that were made by young people within the Indigenous community, there were actually two programs that, that the Office of the Child Advocate put on specifically for Indigenous youth. One was called Feathers of Hope, and that was a, um, a First Nations youth action plan where where 15 themes were explored by young people who were brought from all over the province. You know, so they talked about um, residential schools and their effect. They talked about First Nations cultures and teaching. They talked about identity and culture. They talked about the tragedy of youth suicide. They talked about drugs and alcohol and sports and recreation. Like, they really big themes and they met regularly and built a report that has been very useful for those people who wanted to go forward in planning meaningful supports for our young people and that's gone they also had uh, Feathers of Hope that hosted forums on, on child welfare on culture, identity and belonging that was that was an amazing program, and again, all of this is gone. So sorry, um, Dan. You mentioned feathers of hope, and you said there was a second one, and then you mentioned feathers yeah. of hope again. Sorry, I think you. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> okay, uh, okay. So the second one actually was called Justice and Juries. Ah, okay. And and it was looking at um, how how young people were feeling as though um, they wanted to, actually the report generated a an investigation and then recommendations for improving policing, reducing involvement in the legal system, and increasing the representation of First Nations peoples on juries. So they had they had a regular they had a forum and they pulled together the ideas and experiences of our young people. Not as a complaint, but to say this is. Dan, are you there? Hello. Um, Hi. 
I am. Oh, good. We lost you again. Listen, can can we just pause there for a sec? Don't lose your thought. We want to come back, uh, but we do have to take a, a short pause. So please stay on the line. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back on Moment of Truth and Element FM after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on Element FM. You're listening in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And uh, from Ottawa, on the line, we have Diane Dewing. She's the president of the Ontario Federation, Teachers Federation, pardon me. And uh, the OTF, as she referred to it, uh, actually represents uh, approximately 160,000 teachers in Ontario's publicly funded schools. Diane, welcome back on the show. We uh, lost you just prior to the break there. I hope you're there and we can hear you now. Well, I hope that you can. <laughs> That's great. And and we were talking about the child advocate and uh, and and the office and the two uh, the two specific indigenous areas, the feathers of hope and the justice for juries. Uh, you were just explaining a little bit. I think you'd pretty much finished up with what the justice for juries had been uh, had been doing, and that they're both gone now. Yes, and they are both gone now, as well as the environment commissioner, who who was fundamental in ensuring that that many of the the issues that that needed to be addressed in terms of of keeping our environment safe and clean and 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 maintaining those spaces she she was a remarkable advocate um, for people all over this province um, to ensure that lo- there was no loss of species either in plant or animals um, and mm. and that's gone too Mm. So that's outside of the education system, but you know we all feed one into the other. Right. So I was thinking when you were on the break about how we're going to be losing an awful lot of teachers, particularly at the high school level. Mm. And I wanted to, to share that that right now, about 21% of our elementary schools report having self-identified Indigenous staff. That's awesome, and we have made great strides in that area. And I can break it down in elementary, because they say 40% of those in elementary um, in, are, in, are in northern Ontario schools, and only 14% in the GTA. Mm. Um, in secondary schools, the number goes up to 46%, which is wonderful. But when we start losing staff, my suspicion is these are fairly new hires and they will go first. Mm. That's a real problem um, because, well, for two reasons. First off, children need to see themselves reflected, and I think the the whole diversity of Canada needs to be reflected um, by those who stand in our classrooms. Mm. But secondly, when when you only have one person or possibly two in a school who who is um, who self identifies as Indigenous, they feel an awful lot of stress and pressure because everybody comes to them for advice on, well, how do I meet the TRC goals? And right. what is the right way of doing this? And who should I contact for? Right. That's, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. Yep, they, they uh, become the, uh, the, the expert. Yeah, well, and, and that may not have been their role in life. Right. You know, they, mm-hmm. they, 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 they trained to be a teacher because they wanted to be a teacher. Right. They come from a community, but they're not an expert on all the communities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very true. It's tough. So you I was know, listening this, this morning to, call, to, uh, to the radio and, and, and the um, information about the cuts to the, the local public health units as well. Mm. So they're, part of the government's cuts include cutting our health mm. units from 35 health units down to 10. Mm. Right. Health units are extremely important um, it, for our school system. They are, I mean, they're meant to be frontline prevention uh, of illness, but they're the ones who come into the school for, for, for health and safety training. 
and serve as a resource to our teachers. Mm. In many of our rural and northern communities, that now is going to be gone. Mm. Territories will be just too la- too large to allow um, for individual school and community visits. Right. Massive. It's massive. Right. So, you have in the system? I'm sorry? Do you have children in the system? I do. Well, I have one in post-secondary, and I have one uh, going into grade 9. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. So this becomes personal. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, she, she's going to be feeling the uh, the effects by the time she graduates, for sure. Well, I suspect she already will because um, grades uh, grades four to uh, to eight are also going to have their right. classes rise. Right. So there will be larger number of students in the classroom, and and of course we also have the introduction of of some of our um, autistic spectrum mm. students um, who who are going to be pushed back into the school system because their therapy programs are no longer funded. Right. And and because of the larger class sizes and because of of a commitment as well to inclusion. I mean these all students will be congregated in the same classrooms. And and that that can be a problem. It's not always a problem, but even the most experienced teacher faced with a class of 37 in a grade 6 class um, with maybe 17 who are on individual education plans and some who are uh, learning disabled and some who are autistic and some who have behavioral challenges and, and, and children who are going through the problems that families sometimes experience, whether it's, you know, uh, economic hardship or um, the splitting up of a family, uh, I mean, all of those things walk into our classrooms, and it, it, it makes it very, very difficult, not just to teach to everyone's needs and abilities, but also to manage behaviors because Mm. some of our children carry heavy burdens into the classroom. Of course, yes, very true. Uh, One of the other things I I did um, as a member of Six Nations, I sat on what was called the Six Nations uh, Student Success Consortium, and we... uh, we, a part of our, our goal was to try and look at how we can increase student success in the elementary school level. And, of course, we were privy to information, and, uh, and, and, uh, and specifically with the community and with families and those kind of things. And so we learned of, of some of those challenges that, that people will be facing and, and, and do face on a daily basis. And I'm sure I, this is no stranger to you in terms of uh, a student that, that doesn't have uh, enough nourishment uh, can't learn correctly if they're not uh, going to class and uh, going to school in the morning uh, without uh, without a breakfast. Um, that's one of the things that that you know could be another challenge for for if people are facing and students are facing. Um, you know, so when you when you hear of those things and we don't often hear about them, but fortunately some schools do have the program where they have the breakfast uh, for for students that that need that meal. Um, but uh, that's just that's just one of the other things that, that, that students face and families face. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, as, as a teacher who spent a long time in the classroom, this is my 37th year in teaching, um, the same kids who arrive at school without breakfast usually also don't have lunch. Yeah. And as a teacher, and I mean, I talk to colleagues from across Canada, and we're all the same. We all keep food in our in in our rooms mm. to feed kids. Right. That's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And if there is no program to feed the children. Um, so we're quickly running out of time. We're getting close to the to the to the wire here. I want to ask you though um, a couple of things. One is 
you know, mentioning all these things that, that are coming down the pipe that are going to be faced for everyone across the province in the educational system. And, and I'm sure you're, as you mentioned earlier, you're meeting with people and teachers and, and government people in, in, in all these meetings you're going to. If you were to stand back and look at, down at Ontario from up way up above it and look down at these, what would you say that the bottom line would be that the, that the overall effect of what is being implemented would mean for the future of and when where do you see this uh, this going in terms of what what the province is is trying to implement in terms of our education and where where those people coming out the other end are going to be either employed not employed or uh, or or doing so from my perspective the government says one thing and does another. Mm. Um, we're transitioning now from a resource-based economy to a knowledge-based economy. Mm-hmm. This is a time to invest in education, and instead they are stripping it down to nothing. Our children are going to graduate unprepared. We're going back to the kind of... They want a 1950s-style rote learning, sit in your chair, behave yourself... Um, uh, memorization uh, kind of learning that was popular then when we know that that people in, in, in who employ are saying over and over again, we don't care what they know, we'll teach them what they need to know. Mm. <laughs> but they need to be creative. They need to be able to work independently. They need to be able to work as a member of a team. They need to be curious. They need to be engaged. Mm. And, and those are the things that teachers do, not e-learning. So I, I am very worried about how we are shortchanging the next generation, and I fear that we will all pay for decades mm. for these cuts. Mm. Um, it, it, so we're now running out of time very quickly. I want to know, Dan, are you familiar with the Indigenous Peoples Atlas of Canada? Have you heard of that? Uh, I sure am, and in <laughs> fact, I stood on the map. I think Great. it's one of the best I have ever seen. It is an amazing resource. Great. The other thing I wanted to mention about students, my daughter, one of them, is remembering and knows what's going on with this. They're very aware of what's happening. So I think that's another plus that our students have going for them right now. Diane, we're out of time, and I'm sorry we are. I hope you can come back and talk again in the future. Thanks for being a guest on our show. Thank you for inviting me.